Cairo, Seattle. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, John Oates, as in Holland Oates, as in the one who had the big fuzzy caterpillar living on his lip for most of the 1970s and 80s. Uh, things changed after I shaved my mustache. I, I was like kind of freed from my the shackle of my facial hair. Holland Oates is the kind of band that you go see live and you realize that you know every single song and every single song is a hit. We're talking Maneater. We're talking I Can't Go For That. We're talking You're a Rich Girl, which do you remember that song had a bad word in it that they would play on the radio? Ah, the, the B, B word. word. And that just felt like <laughs> that snuck through. Like I always was stoked on that as a kid. Hall and Oates have sold 40 million records. They are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And they are the best selling music duo in history. So I started thinking about famous food duos. Ketchup and mustard, peanut butter and jelly, and the ultimate arranged marriage, salt and pepper. They're always together, but why? When and why did they become the standard table seasonings? I consult with Professor Ken Albala, who teaches food history at the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. Salt and pepper were not originally a couple. And Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams has been churning out funky flavored ice creams years before charcoal ash honey tahini lavender became a mainstream flavor that even your grandma likes to order with bee pollen on top. In fact, founder Jenny Brittenbauer single-handedly started the salted caramel ice cream craze. Or is it caramel? I don't know. Caramel? Caramel? But Jenny is here to talk about how music influences her ice cream flavors. I would say that music influences almost everything that we do. But first, my conversation with John Oates. The one with the mustache. Oh, I'm so sorry. I hung up on you when I tried to take you off the speakerphone. That's okay. I'm used to being hung up on. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That's all all right. right. John Oates and Daryl Hall shared songwriting duty. But it was John who came up with the lyrics to one of their most famous songs. Maneater. I remember being a kid and just like losing myself in Maneater, being at my neighbor's house and dancing all over the living room. I think we were four years old. What? This okay. This is crazy. Maneater is the first song that I remember liking. Oh. As a kid. And I was so into it. And my strongest memory is being at my neighbor's house and watching trees, like pine trees through the window, sort of in the dark, and it looked kind of like a monster, and I thought the song was about a monster. That is so funny. Wow, yours was scary. Mine was joyful. (laughs) We still unite. On Wikipedia, it says Maneater is a metaphor for New York City. She'll chew you up, she'll spit you out. But in John's memoir, Change of Seasons, he says the song is based on one actual woman. So I was sitting at a hangout in Greenwich Village uh, where we all used to hang out. It was a very kind of hip place. And, and um, this gal came in and she was absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. And she had a foul mouth and her beauty and her vulgarity kind of was... Um, inspiring let's put it that way Uh, (laughs) (laughs) and that's where she would chew you up and spit you out came from exactly i you know i walked away from that night and uh just said man that's that girl is she's on a whole other level and she would chew you up and spit you out and it clicked and went oh she's a man eater of course and i went boom and that was it this woman is just walking around living her life she doesn't have any idea that this number one song is about her 
She may. I at this point, I I God, I haven't spoken to her in years, so I wouldn't know. Oh, it's somebody that you knew. It wasn't just like somebody you met one night oh, yeah, and then no, never no, saw. No, no, I knew her. Yeah, she was she was a very like top model at the time in New York. You oh, know, got very, it. Very famous person. John was born in New York City into a multi generational Italian American family. What was mm-hmm. eating like growing up? My grandmother ran the kitchen. No one was allowed in there except for me because I was the young, the firstborn son in an Italian family, and that's an exalted position. So um, I was allowed to be in there. She would always give me the first meatball. She would speak to me in Italian, which I didn't really understand anything she said, but I kind of did. You know, I was a little prince, so to speak, and uh, she made lasagna. She used to make her own lasagna flats and lay it out on the, on the bed on a, sh- on a sheet to dry and um, our holiday dinners were always Italian. They were lasagna, spaghetti, or you know, usually macaroni, rigatoni with meatballs and sausage. Real, real basic Southern Italian peasant food. And do you keep any of those traditions alive with your own holidays, having Italian-American yeah, food? Yeah, we actually, absolutely. It's, we don't have a lot of traditions with our, our family. You know, we have a son who's 23, and uh, every Christmas we make lasagna together. That's what we do. We make a point of it, yep. Oh, I love that. And so do you make the noodles from scratch, too, just like your grandma? No, no, I, no I'm not that hardcore. I, no, no. We, we buy the noodles, but we, we make everything else. Nice. I didn't mean to lasagna shame you there, by the way. No, you did. You did. I'm, I'm really, it's, it's ruined my day. Thanks. I'm so sorry. Okay, John Oates, it's time. What would you like to eat for your last meal? <laughs> oh, I'm so, I'm so boring. Um, a ribeye steak and ice cream. Do you make steak or do you like to go out for it? No, I can I can cook a steak. I, I you know I've, I've taken some time to uh, perfect the uh, my grilling technique, uh, but uh, you know I'd rather go out and have somebody make it for me. But you know I always look for a good steakhouse because it's kind of meal when you're traveling on the road that if you find a really good steakhouse you're very seldom disappointed. So it's one of those things. Whereas you know if you try to find a good Italian restaurant and you're in Iowa or you know Kansas perhaps you may not find one. You know or it might be not quite up to what you think it should be. But a steak, you can usually find a good one. And what's your favorite kind of ice cream? Uh, Real ice cream with butter and sugar and, you know, none of this, like, fake, holistic, healthy crap. You know, Haagen-Dazs, Ben & Jerry's. Jenny's is pretty cool in Nashville. It's kind of a boutique-y ice cream, but it's really good. All right, so you say none of this fake stuff. Has that entered your personal freezer? Why do you have this opposition to fakey low-fat ice cream? Because if I, because my philosophy for eating is, if you're going to have something, eat the best version of it. Just do it in moderation, and that's the secret. It's it's more of a, a European way of thinking. You know, if you're going to have bread and butter, you know, don't use margarine, just use butter, but just don't eat a lot of it. And if you're going to have ice cream, eat really good ice cream, but just eat a little bit. And that's how I think. John Oates wants a ribeye and full fat ice cream. None of that fat-free stuff for his last meal. And later in the show, we're going to get into the ice cream. Jenny of Jenny Splendid Ice Creams tells me what flavor she'd create if she was in a room soaking up the sweet, sweet sounds of Holland Oats. But you can't have dessert until you have your dinner. So after the break, we're going to learn the history of salt and pepper. And I'll share my unpopular opinion on the ubiquitous pear. We'll be right back.
last month was Your Last Meal's third anniversary. I don't know what you give as a gift. Is it aluminum or tacos? What is the third gift? It's a dry pasta. Oh, 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 I'm happy with that. And if you haven't been listening since the very beginning, there are plenty of episodes to get you through your runs and your road trips and your procrasta baking sessions. I happen to be a big fan of the William Shatner episode. Even if you have never watched Star Trek, like me, and don't know anything really about William Shatner until you researched him for your podcast, also me, I guarantee you will be entertained. I read that you were conceptualizing a show called MILF, Mothers I'd Like to Feed. That's right. <laughs> what would that show be about? Well, I, I, it's a... Um, I'm about to say something that doesn't wouldn't look good in print. And after having him on the show, we are all in love with fashion designer Isaac Mizrahi. She also just makes like, you know, wonderful sort of newfangled muffin ideas. Um, Because nothing is a muffin anymore, by the way. It always has to be like some hybrid between a muffin and a scuffin and a muffin and a shuffin and a, (laughs) right? And nothing, by the way, I was going to say, what's a muffin idea? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know what I'm talking about. Do not lie and say you don't know what I'm talking about. They don't make the plain old baked goods anymore. Yeah. Like it's a croissini. Right. It's a totally. croissanta. Quasinta. It's not a croissant. <laughs> you see what I mean? Which or is also your psychic's name, Quasinta. Right. Exactly. Boom. So make sure and subscribe so you never miss an episode and take a second to leave a quick review. It's good for my self-esteem and it helps others find the podcast. Okay. Let's get back to John Oates, the one with the mustache. You have been playing music for a very long time, and you've been playing music with Daryl Hall for a very long time. A lot of people can't keep a marriage, a friendship, let alone a band together that long. How do you keep this relationship together? What is your secret to playing music with someone for so long? <laughs> well, um, let's see. Uh, there's a number of things. One thing is uh, if you grow up together and uh, you kind of have a shared history, it's like more like being a brother in a, in a family than it is a musical partner. And we got together as friends. We didn't really get together to kind of set the world on fire and become, you know, a big hit-making machine. The bedrock of, of our relationship is that. And the other thing is and now, you know, we live completely separate lives. We live in different parts of the country. We have different interests outside of music. So I think it's a combination of the yin and the yang, you know. The, we, we just have these personalities that seem to mesh. You know who else seems to mesh? Who else is yin and yang? Another duo that has billions of number one hits together? Salt and Pepper. And no, we're not talking about Salt and Peppa, P-E-P-A. We are talking about Salt and Pepper, the seasonings. Those fools are always together. And we just blindly sprinkle them both on our food like it's the gosh darn law. Have you ever stopped to wonder why salt and pepper are the default seasonings in the United States? Why doesn't every table have a shaker of cinnamon or cumin? Ken Albala has some answers. He's a food scholar and a professor of food history at the University of Pacific in Stockton, California. I've been curious for years about how salt and pepper came together. It's on the table at every home, every diner in America. uh, And I think a lot of people don't think twice about how they got there. So how did salt and pepper get into this arranged marriage? Salt and pepper were not originally a couple. Um, Originally, salt alone would appear on a table and usually in a salt cellar. And you would 
add salt at leisure, you know, however you wanted uh, in the course of a meal, or the person who was carving your food would offer it on the end of the knife and put a little bit on your plate. So salt is the universal condiment. It's a basic flavor. You know, it's one of the few uh, flavors that's pure. And the idea that you could add it at your discretion was, of course, that people have different levels of tolerance for salt on their palate. Pepper wasn't introduced to the West until the late Middle Ages in the 12th or 13th century. And it arrived in Europe before chili peppers. Pepper was the major source of heat. We don't often think of things like medieval cuisine as being, um, you know, heat forward. But pepper came from the other side of the world. It came from India, uh, traveled through the hands of middlemen, Arab merchants, up to the Venetians, and then made its way to northern Europe. So, And there is no other source of heat, really. And I think that's why it becomes really, really valuable. Pepper arrived in medieval Europe around the same time as lots of other far-flung spices, like cloves and nutmeg and cinnamon and ginger. But those spices arrived in much larger quantities because of a direct sea route from Europe to Asia. So pepper was more scarce, which means it was more expensive, which means people got to look fancy and important when they served a dish with a bunch of little black specks on top. You guys couldn't see it, but I was just doing air pepper grinder. <laughs> If you think watching a dude do air guitar is dorky, watch a lady do air pepper grinder. <laughs> so pepper became more important than all those other spices. And you see them appearing in cookbooks and cookbooks start to appeal to ordinary housewives rather than just the court. And I think what happens is their value gets diminished precisely because anyone can do them. You know, if you're an elite person and suddenly you see someone right below you being able to use all these spices in their food, you're going to say, oh, well, that's not so special anymore. You know, I have to come up with something else. You know, if you offer a dish that has a lot of pepper on it, then you're, you're clearly, you can flaunt it. But pepper still wasn't available on the table in a little shaker next to the salt. It was added to food back in the kitchen. It wasn't until salt and pepper shakers were invented around the 19th century that you were given the option to add it to your own meal. And then it just becomes ubiquitous. And I think the appeal of it is that salt gives you an absolute basic flavor. Pepper gives you the heat. Uh, there might be sugar on the table, although that's been banished to desserts. Mostly it'll go in your coffee or tea or, wood or other beverage. And those are all basic flavors. I think in some cultures you'll also find a, a basic sour. You'll find vinegar on the table or a lime juice or something like that to perk up. It's not so much a couple as four basic flavor things that will go on virtually anything in a way that ginger really doesn't go with everything. Uh, cinnamon, you wouldn't, although they, they did sprinkle it on their chicken with sugar in the Middle Ages. But it's really not something that you would think, oh, this dish is missing something. I think it needs a little cinnamon. That's just not a modern way of thinking. We banish cinnamon to the end of the meal. Spices have always been big business. You know, it's big in the trade world. It has all to do with money. So skipping ahead to the 19th century, where you start seeing salt and pepper on tables in America and in the salt and pepper shakers, is there some company that might have been responsible for that? You know, just the reason that I'm assuming Tabasco is on every table is because they just <laughs> gave free samples and did a lot of marketing. That's my assumption. Is it the same thing when it comes to salt and pepper on tables? Was there like a company you think that kind of pushed this? You know, I don't know the details of that, but I would be willing to bet you a hundred bucks right now that a company started selling those little glass salt and pepper shakers. And then every restaurant said, oh, we need to have these on the table. They may have even given them away in order for you to get, you know, keep buying the salt and pepper from them or something like that. Um, and I'm just guessing here, but I'd be willing to bet that 
that's the case. This may be an unpopular opinion, but if salt and pepper were in couples therapy and I was their therapist, I might encourage a divorce. Rachel. I know. After a lifetime of just automatically sprinkling pepper on my food just because it's there and it seems like I'm supposed to, and every recipe just tells you to put it in, I realize something. I don't really like pepper that much. I stopped putting it on my food a long time ago. Like, I very rarely use it because the pre-ground stuff, the really powdery pepper, that always tastes musty to me. And when I crack fresh pepper on a dish, I always end up biting into a little chunk and it overwhelms all the other flavors and takes over my entire mouth. And pepper isn't a neutral flavor like salt. Salt makes a food taste more like itself. Salt makes sense. But pepper has a flavor. And I don't think it goes with everything. Here's the bizarre thing. I'm convinced that 90% of the pepper you will find in a restaurant on the table is stale. And it's awful. Yes. And, you know, and it just doesn't have flavor. And I think white pepper is really vile. I think it's just, it's always stale. It's very barnyardy. Ugh, it's just got this nasty kind of aroma to it. Um, It might be good if it's fresh. I don't know. But if you take really good peppercorns and grind them fresh coarsely, the flavor is astounding. It's, it's just amazing. And I think maybe it doesn't belong in a shaker on the table pre-ground. Maybe it should be something that the chef uses at discretion, you know, and um, maybe offers you some on your salad with those, you know, big fancy wooden pepper grinders. But I love pepper, but, but I almost never will take it if it's in a shaker pre-ground. From the time that it leaves the field until it makes it in your jar and then sits on the shelf for several years, it can be a really long time. It surprises me to hear that pepper is used as something spicy because in this country, even the most spice afraid grandma in the Midwest is going to be cracking pepper under a hot dish. So does that have to do with the fact that it might be stale, that it's not considered a spicy spice anymore? It's kind of considered more of just a generic flavor? That is precisely the case. Um, I think when you have good pepper, it should be hot on the tongue. I think if it's if it's coarsely ground enough and you're using enough of it, it, it'll burn your tongue, which is nice, you know, and that gives you a kind of cheap thrill. And I think, yeah, the, the reason that it becomes universal is because it's flavorless. <laughs> so since most of our pepper is not very good and it's not providing the heat that it was intended to provide, do you think that we should knock this out and put something new on the table? Do you think we should keep on with salt and pepper or is it time to make a change? I would love to see um, a citrus on the table at all times. Me too. A little lime juice on everything would make the world so much better. Uh, obviously, high-end restaurants kind of resent the fact that diners will reseason the food after it comes out. And chefs are, are insulted by that, in a sense. There are restaurants that don't even include salt. I tend to like things salty, so I would be really sad if there weren't salt on the on the table. But I think I'm trying to think of what's always on my table. There's always salt and, pe- and pepper often lime and uh, some kind of chili sauce. But that that sounds that's a good start, I think. I'm the same with you. I was just thinking, though, like if you wanted a powdery version of something acidic, I think sumac would be good to have on every table. Sumac is gorgeous. Oh, my God. Yes. And ardana, which is uh, pomegranate seeds ground up. It's red. It's similar to sumac in a way. Or mango powder, which is amchur, you find in Indian cuisine. Or... I've been doing this for a long time as I, I have a Meyer lemon tree in my backyard and I uh, pickle those, just throw them into salt and pickle them, then take them out, cut them up, dehydrate them, grind them. So I've got this like lemon, salty lemon powder, which is so addictive. I don't know why that's not a universal condiment. It's it's so good. What do you guys think? Are you happy with the status quo? Does salt and pepper fulfill all of your needs? 
or is there another spice or another flavor that you always have on your table? I would love to know. Send me a message through Instagram at Your Last Meal Podcast. Aaron, are you down with the S and P? I love me some S and P. Yeah, I put pep. I'm one of those like auto pepper guys. Uh-huh. Never was. And I had a friend in high school that I made fun of because he put pepper on everything. Now I'm that guy. That's and a weird thing to make some. You were you were a pepper <laughs> yeah, bully. <laughs> I was. I was a pepper bully. Okay, who's ready for dessert? When we come back, we're having ice cream. Now, I wasn't going to talk about ice cream in this episode because we have covered it so many times on this podcast because it turns out ice cream's good and people want it for their last meal all the time. But then, totally randomly, I saw an article in the New York Times from maybe 2012 that was talking about how music inspires the flavors over at Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. And John Oates loved Jenny's, so you see how it all went together? And I booked that interview. And when we get back, you're going to hear it. John Oates wants ice cream for his last meal, and one of his favorites is Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. The company started in Columbus, Ohio, and there are now 40 scoop shops in eight states, and you can even buy it online. One time I was having a bad week, and my friend sent me a pint of Jenny's ice cream. You could be that friend, too. I started when I was 22 years old, and I'm going to be 46 this month. I love to say now, looking back on my long life, that I've never worked for anybody else. I left art school. I was studying art and art history at Ohio State University to make ice cream. I had started working at a French pastry shop, fell in love with pastry. It led me to ice cream. And I kind of combined my art and ice cream together. I realized also that ice cream is about scent. And I had been kind of playing around with scent. Even, you know, vanilla is from a flower and it's a scent. It's not a taste on your tongue. So I got really excited about ice cream. And that was in 1995. I opened my first ice cream shop in 96. And it was in an indoor public market. And I just started using ingredients from the farmers and all of the other merchants to make ice creams. And when you first started, were you doing interesting flavors, which we're all used to now, but were not really heard of back then? Oh, yeah. I think it actually took me a full decade before I made my first vanilla ice cream. I mean, I was making white chocolate, Marcona almond and rose petal I made or basil honey and pine nuts. Lots and lots of flowers. Lang Lang, which to this day is one of my favorite um, ice creams. We actually have it out right now in our stores. And it's a big white flower from the Philippines, but it has kind of, it's almost like a spicier version of vanilla. I mean, spicy, like a, like spice, spicy. It's kind of exotic tasting. It's just beautiful. Is it true that you started the salted caramel trend in ice cream in the United States? Well, it's funny because I made my first batch of salted caramel. I mean, it was what I started with in 1996. I had worked for a French pastry shop. And when I was trying to start my ice cream company and I was telling him about it, he was like, oh, you need to do a salty caramel. And where I'm from in Brittany, the, the caramel is salty. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. That sounds awesome. Like I had had salty licorice before, like from Norway, but I didn't realize you could make salty caramel. So she started making caramel and adding a bunch of extra sea salt, not realizing that French caramels are not really that salty. Jenny says the salted caramel flavor she created is way saltier than what the French pastry chef probably had in mind and is not very close to a, quote, authentic French caramel. That was really what it was based on is my mistake in his translation or him translating um, into English what the caramel was like where he was from. And I just, I thought it was salty. And that became my number one flavor very quickly. 
and really the flavor that we were known for for so long. And we still make it the exact same way with open fire in our kitchen and actually pretty dangerous to do it that way. And that flavor has been copied by boutique ice cream shops across the country. I know for a fact that it is also the number one flavor at Molly Moon's here in Seattle. It is a flavor that I don't think Americans used to like, that like very salty, intense flavor with sweets. But now we are all used to it and we can't get enough. Now, I don't know what music Jenny was listening to when she cooked up her first batch of salted caramel, but there's always something on when she and her staff are developing new flavors. I mean, we'd have giant boom boxes just sitting somewhere and every room would have a, a different soundtrack. So I remember one time we were um, blowtorching marshmallows and I think we had Schubert playing. A lot of times we would have do different classical music. For whatever reason, those marshmallows just almost feel like you're doing ballet because you have to like lean in very long and reach the blowtorch over the table and, you, you know, probably put up one of your legs while you're doing it. I mean, it's pretty funny. Now I feel like we listen to a lot of Rolling Stones. We listen to a lot of Bill Withers. Billie Eilish comes up a lot. Lizzo, of course. When it comes to how we build a flavor, I do think in top, middle, and base notes. And so you always want to kind of ground it in something that's richer or um, sort of heavier and then end with something lighter. But you want that sort of contrast in the ice cream. You want flavors and scent playing off of each other. So I understand you're a Hollow Notes fan. Oh, yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> I think it's so wonderful. Aren't we all? Um, yes. So if you were going to be in a room inspiring a flavor, listening to Hollow Notes, what do you think you might come up with for a flavor? I feel like it has to have honey in it. First of all, honey is one of my favorite ingredients. But when I started thinking about Hollow Notes, I just, it's just like, that's the color that comes. It's a color thing. A lot of times I'm led by color because it probably because I studied art and I think it needs to have some crunch in it, some percussion a little bit. So I don't think I'd put oats in it though. <laughs> that's, that would be a, uh, that would be uh, maybe a little too, too on the nose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but definitely honey like and crunch a little salt. I was just thinking honey bunches of oats, which I know we didn't want to do oats, but like having granola clusters or something. Have you, okay, so have you had honey bunches of oats recently? Because I have, and I will tell you, they are better than what you remember. They're great. I mean, they're definitely like good for ice cream toppings. I mean, they're very sweet, but like really great. I actually worked with a chef in Atlanta and we made a dessert and we used those and it's pretty great. So yeah, you might be onto something there. Yeah, sometimes you have to be a little on the nose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oats and honey, they go together like hollow oats. That's exactly right. I mean, hey, if it's delicious, it, you know, that's the first thing. I'm going to have to get this info back to John Oates so that he can then create a song based on this honey bunches of oats ice cream flavor. But on second thought, that honey might make his mustache sticky. I read another excerpt from your book where you said having a mustache and never smiling became a permanent component of my persona. <laughs> can you talk about that? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I look at pictures from the old days and I've never smiled. I always, I always felt my smile looked goofy. I don't know. It just this mustache gave me this serious kind of uh, facade, and uh, I guess I just went with it. Um, I don't know why. I'm not like that. I'm actually, actually, th well, I th I think I'm funny, but maybe other people don't. But <laughs> you know, I have a good sense of humor, and uh, I like to enjoy life. So uh, things changed after I shaved my mustache. I, I was like kind of freed from my the shackle of my facial hair. Do you have a mustache right now? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I grew it back. I grew it back with a little mustache and a little goatee. So I have this kind of like Spanish thing going on. Do you notice that your personality does change based on your facial hair? Oh, absolutely. It's the first thing anyone sees is, is your face. And whatever you present is, is how you come off. 
And that was John Oates' last meal. Holland Oates is performing this Saturday, this weekend, September 14th at the Washington State Fair in Puyallup. And then they leave Washington and they have a string of September tour dates all throughout the South. Go to hallandoats.com slash tour and pick up John's memoir. It's called Change of Seasons. Oh, and I had to ask John one other question about the origin of a song's lyrics. I am a big fan of the Hall & Oates song, Sarah Smile, but I always laugh when I hear the first line. There's just something so weird about it. The first line of Sarah Smile is, baby hair with a woman's eyes. What's that all about? Well, it's reality. It's true. Daryl basically wrote most of that song. It's a postcard to his girlfriend at the time, Sarah, and she had very wispy, thin, baby kind of fine hair. And she had a more mature woman smile. Simple as that. It's right down the pike. It's exactly reality. Sometimes a lyric's just a lyric. Yep. Thanks to Ken Albala, professor of food history at the University of Pacific. Ken has a cookbook you could pick up. It's called Noodle Soup. Ken made a different noodle soup every day for two years, and it includes history along with the recipes. With Hall and Oats, which one's the salt and which, which one's the pepper? Uh, I only got to talk to one of them, so I don't know. But, I mean, John seemed... He's salt of the earth, isn't he? <laughs> maybe he is. Maybe, maybe Daryl is spicy. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, I think don't so. know. Hmm, that's a good question. Thanks so much to Jenny Britton Bauer, founder of Jenny's Splendid Ice Cream. She has a book too. It's called Splendid Ice Creams at Home. It's a bestseller. It won a James Beard Award. So if you make ice cream at home, make sure and pick it up. You can order the book or a pint or find a shop at jennies.com. It's J E N I S. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me. It was recorded by Erin Mason and theme music by Prom Queen, who just moved back to Seattle from L.A. Did she? So exciting for me as her friend, but also for you. So if you want to see her play, she has a bunch of shows coming up. Just look her up on Google. Prom Queen. (laughs) You know how the Internet works. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. And three, two, one. I like to mouth mouth breathe as a cue. <laughs> this mm-hmm. episode, more than many, I wish we could play freaking hollow notes in it, but like, there's no oh, way. But it just feels like something's missing. Years before charcoal ash honey tahini lavender became a mainstay flavor, I got I'm out of breath. I gotta do that over. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, John Oates. I really appreciate your time. Okay. Yeah, it was an interesting interview. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, we'll see you. Bye-bye. Yep.